This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, Tim Shepard with you for Hack. It might surprise you to hear that in Australia, our emissions haven't been coming down. In fact, recently they've been on the rise again. So why is this? We'll break that down for you. You'll also hear from a young climate activist from the Pacific who says his home is already feeling the effects of climate change. And we'll check in with someone on the ground at Burning Man in the US where tens of thousands of people have become stuck at the festival after a surprising amount of rain fell in the Nevada desert. But first... Hack. We don't need a second referendum if the Prime Minister listens to the Australian public, changes the question and just has a simple recognition question put to the Australian people. On Triple J. Look, it's been less than a week since we were given a date for the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. But already the idea of another referendum has been proposed. The leader of the federal opposition, Peter Dutton, said if the October 14 vote is unsuccessful and the coalition is elected, the party would hold another referendum. He says it would propose recognising First Nations Australians in the constitution but would not create a voice to parliament. What do you think about this? If you have any questions, let me know. Text them in on 0439 Hack asked Peter Dutton and the Nationals leader David Littleproud to come on the show, but we didn't hear back from them. We are joined by South Australian Liberal Senator and Arunda woman Karen Little. Senator Little, thank you for coming on Hack today. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. Why are you and many of your colleagues in the Liberal and National parties not supporting this referendum? Well, I came into the Parliament uh, just over 12 months ago as an Indigenous Australian through uh, both my parents. Um, I've been watching this for quite some time and I formed uh, a position on this uh, back uh, when this proposition first came out in 2017. And since being in Parliament and being involved in looking specifically at the wording and the implications of the wording and understanding a bit more about how um, decisions are made and how funding is applied to the states and territories uh, for programs and to other organisations, I've I've decided that it remains a no. But why is that? Okay, the first reason is I don't believe that uh, this proposition needs to go into the constitution. I believe um, in recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the constitution, but not to include voice in the constitution. But why is that? Because obviously enshrining it in the constitution would... uh, give it some kind of certainty that it can't be removed by the next parliament? Is that not a good thing? The issue I have with that is uh, I've listened to evidence that has suggested that it's unknown, it's risky. Uh, I believe it's divisive, not just in its form, because it only provides representation for a specific group of people in the constitution. And I believe that the constitution belongs to everyone equally, whether you came here yesterday, uh, your parents came here um, two generations ago, or your grandparents, or whether you like me, you can trace ancestry back, you know, up to seventy thousand years. I think the constitution belongs to everyone equally, and therefore my position is and continues to be, um, you know, recognise Aboriginal people in the constitution, and legislate for voice. You mentioned a, a version of voice. You mentioned there was some uncertainty around how it would work. This idea that there isn't enough detail about the voice, but isn't it the case that Parliament, if the referendum is successful on October fourteen, Parliament would then work through the details and figure out how it would function? Doesn't that mean that yourself and your Liberal and National Party colleagues would have a say in how that all works? But you're asking Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who talk to me and call me and say we don't even know what this means. You know, we've just seen, uh, you know, the the information that we've just got that 
that voice will be used, the song voice will be used uh, as part of a, you know, a jingle attached to the promotion of, of this concept. And yet, you know, I also get asked, is that is that a program on television? I don't think it's fair to be asking people to embed something in the constitution, which will likely be forever, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, when we haven't got the detail. We've got a set of principles. But is it not, do you, do you agree with the idea that uh, Indigenous people do deserve to have, uh, do need more opportunity to provide advice to government, given the, you know, the issues that they're facing in the country? So I've just walked out of the chamber and a proposition put by myself, Lydia Thorpe and uh, Jacinta Price was actually asking for a simple Senate inquiry to look at land councils and organisations that receive funding for benefit for the most disadvantaged people. In this case, it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it was, um, it was voted down by the Greens and the Labor Party. Now, if you're going to improve the lives of people, you need to start where the money actually goes and ask the question, of all the millions and billions that have gone into improving the lives of Indigenous peoples, how is that, how is that working from the perspective of the very people this is supposed to respond to and support. And we couldn't even get that um, that proposition for an inquiry um, past mm. the Senate. And that's where I say it starts. It starts when you give money to the states and territories. Um, it starts with understanding how that money is spent. This is a really important decision not to be taken lightly and has implications not just for this generation but for future generations. I want to ask about the idea that Peter Dutton's put can forward. Just, can I just tell you, I've got bells ringing in the background. Um, I can't continue to speak to you. That's the parliamentary process. Are we able to just get um, one more question in very quickly? I, I can walk and, and talk, yes. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, your party leader, Peter Dutton, said he would hold a second referendum on October 14. Why propose a second one before the first one has even taken place? Well, I would say... Why take a referendum to the Australian people when you haven't even provided the detail, when the Prime Minister has been responsible for determining the date? And I believe from the people I've spoken to that if you put a proposition to people that is about um, putting constitutional recognition for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution, we would get agreement. It would be resounding and it would not be divisive. Secondly, I think everybody wants to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. I think that's a given. And you do that through what I talked about before. Accountability is the way you do it. All right, Senator Little, thank you for taking the time to speak to us on Hack Today. I'll let you go. Thank you so much. Bye. That was the South Australian Liberal Senator Karen Little, who's opposed to the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And we've got some text coming through. Someone, Luke says, I feel the vote needs to be split into two questions. One, to recognise First Nations people and a second, the voice to Parliament. Well, that is something that have, has been raised as an issue as well by some politicians. And don't forget that for a full breakdown of what the voice means and how to cast your vote, we do have a big explainer on the Hack Instagram as well. All right, it's time to move on. Hack. It's our job to act with urgency to avoid the worst of the emergency. The elephant in the room is what we're not doing, bringing down, phasing out fossil fuels. On Triple Jack. You might have missed the news a couple of weeks ago about Australia's emissions. It didn't get a whole lot of attention, but when we're talking about climate change and its impact on places like the Pacific, it is good to look at what Australia's doing or not doing in some cases. 
And it's not great news because in the last couple of years, our emissions haven't been going down. Here's Joe Lauder to break it all down for you. The new government was voted in, yes, with a lot of work to do, but we're not seeing Australia's emissions reduce at all. They're actually increasing. I'm going to take a guess and say you're probably surprised to hear that. Since we got out of lockdowns, our emissions have flatlined. And as Polly Hemming from the progressive think tank the Australia Institute told me, they've actually gone up slightly in the last 12 months. From June 2022 to June 2023, emissions in Australia have increased by 4 million tonnes. So let's break this down a bit more and see why this is happening. The good news is that thanks to renewables, emissions are down in the electricity sector and that'll continue to head in that direction. But transport is up a lot by 6.5%. And Australia's gas boom has also been driving up emissions. Even though it's mostly shipped overseas and burnt there, it takes a lot of energy to process LNG gas for export. And there's also fugitive emissions. And that's the methane that basically leaks out when you are extracting gas and coal. And because we are still producing and exporting a lot of gas and coal for export and want to do more of that, that means our fugitive emissions are subsequently increasing as well. Australia's Climate Minister Chris Bowen told Hack in a statement that our emissions are pretty similar to what's going on in other countries post-COVID lockdowns. And he said that the changes introduced earlier to what's called the safeguard mechanism need time to work. Which only came into effect in July and aren't included in this inventory update and will deliver over 200 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions to 2030, equivalent to taking two-thirds of the nation's cars off the road. We're also getting on with the job of delivering a cleaner, cheaper grid with 82% renewables by 2030 and a national emissions reduction target of 43% by 2030. Just on that target, Australia has reduced emissions by over 24% so far from 2005. But that's largely come from what's called land use changes and forestry. And when the land sector is included in our climate accounting, natural carbon sinks, those things that basically suck suck up carbon, which we know trees do, they can mask rising emissions in other areas of the economy, like transport, like fugitive emissions. Australia stopped a lot of land clearing, so our land use emissions have plummeted. That makes up 95% of the emissions cuts that we've made since 2005. If you take that out, Australia's emissions have only gone down by, wait for it, 1.6%. If you strip that back and look at the real picture, those things that are actually we can measure with some accuracy, you can see that our emissions from those human sources, like transport, fossil fuels, they're all increasing. At this rate, are we going to meet our 2030 targets? We probably will, but I'll tell you that we'll be meeting them on paper only. At the same time, you might have seen the news around that the federal government gave the green light for a coal mine expansion in central Queensland. In a statement to Hack, the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek said it'll operate for 20 years and then the site will be rehabilitated. The Albanese government has made decisions in accordance with the facts and the national environment law. That's what happens on every project and that's what's happened here. I'm the first environment minister in history to stop a coal mine and I've cancelled two others. The continued approval of new fossil fuel projects in Australia is really challenging for the story Australia is trying to tell about our role in tackling harmful climate change. 
That's Jennifer Rayner from the Climate Council. The Gregory Crinham coal mine produces what's called metallurgical coal. That's the stuff that's used to make steel, not for power. And at the moment, we don't have alternatives to make steel this way. But Jennifer says that's changing. The reality is all types of coal produce harmful carbon emissions, which are fueling harmful climate change. Jennifer Rayner from the Climate Council thinks the government's trying to walk both sides of the line. It's really hard for the Albanese government to square this circle. Some of the action that they are taking domestically to tackle climate change is really valuable and useful, like uh, growing the amount of renewables in our energy system. But at the same time, when they're opening up new coal mines and refusing to do anything about Australia's fossil fuel exports, which are our largest contribution to global climate change, those two stories are simply in consistent with each other. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Thank you to Joe Lauder for that report. Already some texts coming through. Jaden says, if you're concerned about carbon emissions, new fossil fuel projects have to host public consultation as to whether you support or oppose them. I state my opposition to projects like these on the New South Wales major projects planning portal, and you can do it across the country. Well, look, as we've heard before, What we do in Australia and what other nations do around the world when it comes to emissions has an impact in other places. So I want to get a perspective you probably don't hear as often. His name is Zedi Vahia Devesi. He's 20 years old and he's from Malaita province in the Solomon Islands. He's in Australia because he wants people to understand that climate change is already having a devastating impact on his home. Zedi, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Can you tell me what changes you're seeing in the Solomon Islands? Right now in uh, Sulufo, in my artificial island, sea level rise is actually affecting many houses in the community. And because of the warmth of water, many of the sea creatures and many of the fishes that we uh, usually find them during the season are disappearing because of the changes of temperature in the water. Okay, so there's, there's two issues that you're facing. One is rising sea levels, and is that already having an impact on your community? Are you already seeing that right now? Yes, right now, if there was supposed to be a cyclone, the water level would rise all the way to the houses that are closer to the sea world. And this is very scary because like most of the elders live there and most of the people that make their houses is not like built from construction buildings and bricks. These are houses that were built by traditional knowledge. That means wood and timber gathered from the uh, land. Climate change then clearly is posing some kind of threat. The other element that you mentioned was uh, warmer water and that was affecting the fishing. And that is obviously food sources where you're from. Yes, we are fishing people. We depend mostly on the sea for our food. We depend mostly on the sea for our income. Majority of us, we don't have the opportunity to go to school. We stay in um, the home, the villages. And so these fishes, we take them and sell them in marketplaces in the Solomon Islands for income to buy um, rice and things such as these. And without those fish, what happens? Without those fish, we're going to find hunger. We're going to find kids with no nowhere to find nutritions and we're going to depend on money to buy food from the shops but how are we going to buy food from the shops when those fishes and those sea creatures are resources to sell to get money to buy food from the shops Mm. so the displacement there is very evident so there's clearly you know a lack of housing that's impacting your community there's also a loss of money or jobs or some kind of work to be able to put food on the table but also something you mentioned before is a cultural loss the fact that you're community has been there for hundreds of years. Can you tell me more about that? 
as indigenous kids in Sulufo, we were taught by their grandfathers or how to do this, how to do this. When is the right time to go fish? When is this good time to do this? When you don't have those type of resources to go look for in the oceans, you're not only losing these resources, but you're also losing your traditional knowledge. And having those traditional knowledge is, is a part of you. You are the traditional knowledge. You become that person in that community that, who has those type of knowledge, you know? And that's how you identify yourself, with those knowledge, people from the sea. How can you teach someone to do the same practices when there's nothing to practice it on? So mm. that's what's scary about it. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Tim Shepard and I'm speaking with a very special guest all the way from the Solomon Islands. His name is Zeddy. He's a 20-year-old climate activist and he's speaking about how rising sea levels and warming oceans are already impacting the community that he's from. A lot of people, Zeddy, particularly probably in Australia, they're aware of climate change, but they may not think that it's going to impact them or other people for some time to come, maybe years or even decades. What do you want to say to those people? I just want to say, like, ignorance is very, it's very bad. If Australia were to think of us, we are, we are one Pacific. We share the same ocean. Every single kid in the Solomon Islands, when they say Australia, they think of Australia and those Australians as biggest sisters of the, of the regions that we came from. And we look to them for, for our helps and we look to them as, for, as a source of uh, our voices to be heard. But right now, Australia is being ignorant towards us. And that's, that's very saddening, you know. And is that why you're here in Australia? Are you hoping to change that? I'm hoping to change the mindset of not only in Australians, adult Australians, but also new generations of Australians. Because if we had to talk about the future, like my good friend said, we should also involve the people who are going to be living in the future. I'm here to like empower these Australian kids to just push forward and also support also indigenous kids in the, in the Pacific as well. Do you think Australia and our federal government here have a role to play in protecting your community from the effects of climate change? 100%. In the places that we came from, we didn't have big buildings, big factories. No. Only thing we have is our natural resources. We depend mostly on these things around us for food. It scares me because we're not even contributing to climate change. We're not even contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. So of course they have responsibility to, to help the people of the Pacific and their struggles because we are the first-hand people who's going to face this type of problems. How do people talk about climate change in your community back home. Are they angry at how it's playing out around the world? For me personally, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm tired of hearing people talk, talk too much talk. Oh yes, we provide funds. Oh yes, we do this. Yes, we, we're going to help people. Yes. But these grassroots communities are looking at things that are happening every day and they're not seeing with the funds that are coming. They're not seeing the help that the, the people promised on the news and it's 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 ridiculous how are you gonna how are you gonna talk and not do action for it it, it may take six years to to hit you guys but now we need we need we need it right now because it's 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 really dangerous for us what do you need from governments like australia at the moment if if, if the sea levels are already rising is it at a point where you can't stop that damage is there something that you need to be able to continue living in your community we need funds to reach the grassroots of communities. We already have the tra traditional knowledge for preservations and things like this, but we just need funds to help people who are actually facing it to help support them in their fight for the climate change right now. All right, Zeddy, thank you so much for coming on Hack and sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was Zeddy Vahia Davesi, a 20-year-old climate activist from the Solomon Islands. 
warning that rising sea levels and warming ocean temperatures are already impacting his community. Lots of texts coming through on this one. Someone says, I believe an important step to addressing Australia's fossil fuel emissions and minimising climate change is to not only invest in more sustainable sources of energy, but also helping pre-existing miners transition into roles created by these newer energy sources. And someone else says, nuclear energy is the way to go. Tangible and capturable waste, huge amounts of power at a low cost. All right, let's move on to something else now. Hack. I didn't even know Burning Man could flood, and now that's all I'm hearing about. On Triple Jack. Imagine 70,000 people camping in the middle of a desert when all of a sudden a downpour of rain floods the place. That's what happened to Burning Man in the US over the weekend. Sadly, one person has died and cars have been getting bogged in the wet ground as they try to leave, forcing authorities to block the exits. It all sounds pretty hectic and soon we're going to chat with someone who's there, but April McLennan is going to bring you all up to speed first. Wearing plastic bags for shoes or even just braving bare feet, heaps of festival goers trudge through sticky, thick mud at this year's Burning Man Festival. Well, I'm soaking wet and everything on the inside of my tent is soaking wet. About 60,000 people usually go to the event, best known for setting a large wooden man on fire. But the festival site flooded on Friday as storms swept through the Nevada desert in the US, dumping 150 millimetres of rain on the area. It has been raining all night and it's supposed to rain again in about an hour. And uh, no one's going anywhere. No one's coming in, no one's coming out. There's trash everywhere. The infrastructure is failing. Our camp is without power and water. Currently, the porta potties can't be serviced due to the mud, so everything's sort of overflowing. Things on the ground are pretty grim. Someone has actually died. Thousands of people are still stranded, and festival goers have been told to conserve their food and water in case they're there a while. We are not allowed out of via. The gates are locked. Um, we we're okay. We have enough tuna for a week. Some people attempted to hike out of the festival, while others decided to keep the party going. And I, I bet you any money that everybody's going to get naked and run through the mud. The festival's already been in headlines this week, after a ranger ploughed his patrol vehicle through a blockade set up by climate activists who were protesting outside the festival. Video footage posted online shows the ranger climbing out of his ute, drawing his weapon and yelling at protesters. He approaches a woman as she lowers herself onto the ground, grabs her by the arm and kneels on her back. That ranger's actions are now under review. The group were protesting against things like private jets flying into the festival, single-use plastics and unnecessary propane burning. And heaps of people agree that Burning Man isn't super great for the environment. Maybe if like tens of thousands of wealthy software engineers and their buddies drive out into the desert to trip. It's not not that sad if they get stuck in the mud. While the festival was meant to finish up today, it's not yet known when the roads will reopen so people can go home. Pack on Triple J. April McLennan there, and it sounds pretty scary. Well, I want to speak with someone who's been at Burning Man to find out what it's actually like. Turns out that a good friend of the show, Aussie actor Remy Hee, is one of the people waiting to get out. Remy, thanks for coming on Hack. What's it like on the ground there? I've seen so many TikToks floating around. Can you describe it for us? Look, it's pretty muddy. 
Um, the ground is an absolute quagmire. Uh, I'm actually standing near a car that got bogged when someone was trying to get out just earlier. Um, but I have to tell you, like, the, the vibes are high. The spirits are great. I can see some people um, lighting fireworks off in the distance from the open plier, which is to say the, the, the open desert away from the city, which is where a lot of the art installations are. And, you know, pe- people have been uh, really making do. Do you reckon that's got to do with the crowd of people that usually go to Burning Man? Because you've been before, right? What's it usually like when it's not raining? How big is it? Yeah, this is, this is my third time. Look, it's, it's a pretty big event. 80,000 people converge into an inhospitable desert in the middle of nowhere and attempt to build a temporary city out of nowhere that lasts for exactly a week and then vanishes without a trace. It's just as big as as any uh, previous year, although this is is extreme. I I don't think they've had an event like this in well over the, the 10 or 20 years that anyone I know has been going to the event. Yeah, right. And it, it like actually began almost a week ago. Hey, like, was there any sign that yeah. this might happen when you were on the way there or arriving and setting there up? There was in what's called Build Week when a lot of the infrastructure goes up. And 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 to be to be clear, uh, the infrastructure is built by the participants. The like organization itself does not do a lot of of building, save for like the man itself, which gets burnt. So a lot of the participants who came early to build art, to build structures, to build camps. They did experience uh, wet weather that delayed things. I think they were rained out for about two or three days. We've been rained out for three now, but it's finally, the, the weather cooled off this evening. We can see stars, the clouds are out, and we just got word that uh, the gates might be open again tomorrow. So it, it's looking like people can leave on time. All right. I was going to ask, when did it actually make a turn for the worst uh, during the festival? Friday. So it's Sunday here in the States right now in, in, in Nevada, and on Friday we got the first rain. And it was pretty interesting. Like I say, the ground just turned to this clay, this absolute cement that tore people's shoes. Uh, my, my shoes, I abandoned them Friday because uh, nothing can really withstand this mud. So we've been improvising. Everyone's been swearing by socks or uh, Ziploc bags, duct taped to your feet or just, just going barefoot. It's a pretty crazy sight. Well, I saw some stuff about the fact that you need to protect your feet because of something to do with, you know, the acidity or the... The pH of, of, yeah. of the dirt out here, that's right. It's, it's, an, it's an alkaline. So uh, if you do spend all day barefoot, there's, it's good advice to kind of spray down with a bit of vinegar uh, and water solution at the end of the day to, to offset the chance of a chemical burn. When I said it's an inhospitable desert, this place is trying to kill you. <laughs> well, what's the situation? Have you got like food and water and power at the oh, moment? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm actually with a camp of four artists who we, we do arrive here early each year to uh, build some of the art that people like to go and see out, out in the desert. And this is the first year where we've gone completely solar. So we've got a pretty uh, good setup right now. Everyone's staying dry. The solar panels, despite all the rain, have actually been juicing us up uh, and, and enough so that we can run everything we need to. We've got, we've got like two or three fridges going. So we have more than enough food. And, you know, some really great people from, from other camps have been going around taking checklists of what people have, what people need. Is there any medication that people need and are running low on? So everyone's really looking after each other. Everyone's really pitching in. Right now, we're, we're, I'm camped next to a, a group of mathematicians, and they serve pie every day at 3.14. Um, so that's, a, you know, it's, like, it's a yeah. really big community spirit, and everyone's, everyone's been helping each other out. Right. So it sounds like there's not too many people who are stuck there that are 
worried or angry. Is... I, I haven't. I honestly, I've not met anyone that wants to leave. I know. I know that there are people <laughs> trying to get out, but the, the vibes are high. Has the communication from the organisers and the authorities been pretty good, or has it been a bit yeah, uh, there's, hit and miss? There's a, no, there's there's a twenty four seven radio station um, that that we've been tuned into, and also the Black Rock City Rangers have been doing the rounds every day, just checking in and making sure everyone's safe. The last we heard was that uh, this should be drying up tomorrow, and and hopefully people can uh, start to make their way if they need to. And look, a lot of people after, you know, the drama at Splendor last year when that was sort of uh, washed out with rain and very muddy, a lot of people said they didn't want to go back after that experience. What about you with Burning Man? Has this put you off? Dude, I, I have to say, this has been one of the funnest years. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to make light of anyone's situation. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of hardship out here. Um, I, I know some people have definitely been doing it tough, but you don't come out to a desert in the middle of the nowhere to have it easy. And it definitely tests us. It's tested a lot of people, but I've made some really, really good friends throughout this. We've been on some pretty crazy adventures. At the end of the day, everyone's just here to like help each other out and have a good time. But I guess you're pretty looking forward to um, getting out tomorrow if that's the case. I'm looking forward to a shower. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while. All right, I can imagine. Remy Hey, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Uh, can't wait to see you back home soon. That was Aussie actor Remy He, who's one of the tens of thousands of people stuck inside Burning Man Festival in the US desert. But some good news is that it does sound like things are improving, according to Remy, and that they may actually get out a bit sooner than expected. Someone's texted in saying, why the hell are these people there? The organiser is a crook, but according to Remy, it's actually a lot of people who organise their own setups and aren't too stressed about what's going on. But if anything happens, we'll keep you updated. Still getting a lot of texts that are coming through about the voice referendum that we did at the top of the show. Jack from Toowoomba says a specific clause recognising Indigenous people in the constitution will just create division. They are Australian just as is anyone born on this land, not to mention it will be a waste of taxpayer money. Another person says the current proposal just makes it compulsory to have the legislated body. So if the coalition is happy with it being legislated, they should be for this. Someone else, it's a step in the right direction. Why would we go against a positive change? And someone else is just saying that the whole thing is kind of confusing, to be honest. Well, that is something that we do here a lot on Hack. And that's all we have time for on Hack tonight. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hack on Triple Jack.